Good morning. Like uh, Pastor Joseph said, everybody's just dragging a little bit today. We have had a uh, had a long week, but a really great week. Uh, many of you volunteered at VBS this week, and we're very thankful for the volunteering that you did. Uh, the kids had a great time. I think uh, it was one of the best VBSs that we have ever put on, and so we're very thankful for everything that happened this past week. Uh, my name is Pastor Matt. I am uh, the lead pastor here, and uh, looks like we've got lots of new faces with us today. Uh, it's good to have you with us uh, worshiping together. If you've got a Bible, uh, go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 39 is where we are going to be spending our time today. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you, so you can kind of hunt around in there. Maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone that you could use, uh, but we want everybody to be able to follow along if they so desire. And if you are new to the Bible and don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We've got people uh, with us each week who are new to the Bible and don't know where to find things in the Bible. You've got to start somewhere. And lucky for you, we're starting in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. If you want to, you can make your way forward to chapter 39 in where we're going to be today. There are studies that you have probably heard of uh, about that, that track how many times a day we look at our phones. And uh, spoiler alert, it's a lot. <laughs> Uh, I was looking up some of these studies, and the weird thing about it is every study is totally different. Uh, some studies are like it's in the 50s. Some studies are like it's like 500 times. So it's like literally every minute of the day you're looking at your phone. So I don't know what study to believe. The point of the matter is we look at our phones a lot. And I was wondering as I was, I was thinking about that, how many temptations do we face a day? If there was a way somehow to track how many temptations you face in a particular day, what do you think the number would be? 50? 100? I heard 1,000? Probably we got some super tempted people here. <laughs> but it's true. We face a lot of temptations each day. I don't know that there's any way that we could really mem- uh, measure that. Because there's the, there's the obvious temptations, but then there's the other temptations that are related to all the things that we're tempted to, to say, think, Things that we're tempted to not do, that we should do. There's the garden variety temptations that start the moment you wake up. The moment you wake up, up, are you going to reach for your phone and waste the first 20 to 30 minutes of your day scrolling through stuff? And those temptations start to ratchet up as the day goes on. Other temptations have higher stakes, and more significant consequences. Some of us, as, we're, as I'm talking this morning, 
you are thinking that about a particular temptation that you have been battling. Maybe yesterday evening was a giving in to that temptation. You woke up this morning feeling shame and regret and self-loathing about. And we encounter these temptations day after day after day after day. If you don't want to look at your smartphone for a day, you can freeze in a block of ice. But you can't do that with your heart. There is nothing that you can do. There's no place that you can go to get away from temptation. So I'd like us to meditate a little bit about temptation today using the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Our last view of Joseph was back in Genesis chapter 37, and as we last saw him, he was receding into the distance in the horizon. He was bound. He was in uh, a, a traveling merchant's caravan, and so just imagine with me in your mind, if you will, his brothers seeing him recede off into this cloud of dust into the difference. And that caravan, that merchant caravan is headed towards Egypt where Joseph is going to be put up for sale along with the livestock that are traveling in this caravan and the various other imported goods that are in this caravan that will be for sale in Egypt. We know at the very end of chapter 37 that Joseph is sold into slavery. He is bought by a man named Potiphar who is a captain of the guard in Egypt. Potiphar is well-connected. He's wealthy. A man of some power. And so we are wondering immediately what is going to happen to Joseph as he is now brought into this situation and right away in chapter 39 the Bible assures us that Joseph is not only safe but flourishing. Now flourishing as much as you can be having been ripped from your family of origin, sold into slavery, not able to speak the language or have your own freedom. So there's an asterisk there. Joseph is flourishing in the role that he's eventually given. If you're in Genesis 39 with me, look at verse 2. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now, those next few verses tell us that Joseph is so successful in his role here that Potiphar puts him in charge of all of his affairs, the property that he owns, the money that he has, his investments, everything that belongs to Potiphar and everything that has to do with the running of his house. He puts all of that in Joseph's hands so that The only thing that Potiphar has to think about, the Bible tells us, is what he's going to eat for dinner that night. That is how much Joseph is in charge of his 
affairs. But there was a problem that arises. And that problem is one that's probably the last problem we would expect to happen in this situation. But if you look in the second half of verse 6 there in Genesis chapter 39, the Bible says this, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. This is obviously not something that is just a one-time temptation the Bible makes clear to us. Joseph is experiencing the, 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 the wearing nature of temptations because that's the nature of temptation, right? It can be easier to say no once or twice. But when we face the same sort of temptation day after day after day, and that temptation sparks some sort of desire within us, it becomes much more difficult to say no as we are worn down by that temptation. Now imagine how Joseph might have justified this in his mind. Because, I don't know about you, but I am extremely good at finding a way to justify the things that I want to do. The longer you experience temptation, the more your mind goes to work on it and says, well, you know, who's to say that this is actually the wrong decision? Maybe this could actually be the right choice. And we start entertaining those thoughts in our minds and we begin to self-justify to pave the way for us doing the thing that we want to do. And imagine yourself in Joseph's situation. Imagine how you might justify that to yourself. I've been through so much. I mean, of all the difficult experiences that I've had in my life, uh, of all the challenges that I've faced, I've tried to, to live righteously for so long Surely, this one thing is not going to be that big of a problem in the grand scheme of things. Or, another way that Joseph could have justified it is he could have looked at what he stood to lose. He could have told himself, well, technically, she's my boss, so this wouldn't really be a sin because I'm, I'm just doing what I've been told to do, what I must do. Or he could have looked at the consequences that became very real and said, if I, if I say no to her, who knows what will happen to me? And I've already had enough difficult things happen in my life. We are very good at self-justifying. But day after day, Joseph resists the temptation. Now look with me at verse 11. 
But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Mrs. Potiphar keeps his garment with her for the rest of the day, having told that story until her husband arrives home at night wondering what Joseph has prepared for dinner. She tells the story to him, and Potiphar is, of course, incensed. He is angry about this. And the Bible tells us in verse, not this in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Okay, so one of the things that he may have used to self-justify participating in this, you know, the scenario that he works out in his mind, this actually happens. Joseph resists the temptation that is placed in front of him day after day, and his reward is going from being a slave to an inmate. Thanks, God. Because that's not how it's supposed to work, right? I mean, we're often working with a transactional relationship with God where if I, if I do the things that you tell me I'm supposed to do, God, then you owe it to me to make things good because I said no to the temptation. And... Here we have Joseph doing what is right and paying a negative price for it. Saying no to the temptation actually makes his life worse. We often don't know what to do with that because of our transactional relationship with God. I do what you tell me to do, God, and then your end of the bargain is to make things go well for me. Isn't God supposed to reward us when we resist temptation? Now you just imagine Joseph now without any sort of due process at all because he is not owed any sort of due process as a slave. He is simply thrown into prison and he is now spending his first night in prison and if you're Joseph, you might be wondering, where is God? Do I have the worst luck of everyone in the entire world? But the Bible makes very clear to us that God, in spite of the, circum the look of the circumstances, God had not abandoned Joseph. And this is why there is great danger 
in trying to discern, trying to discern God's perspective on us and how he feels about us based on our circumstances. Because God is doing all kinds of things that we cannot be aware of in any given circumstance. And the Bible makes it very clear that God had not abandoned Joseph. Look with me at verse 21. The Bible says, but the Lord was with Joseph. Even though it didn't seem like it, his first night in prison, God wants us to know it looks like Joseph is abandoned, but he's not. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. So even in, even in this change from one bad circumstance to another, God is not withholding from him his steadfast love, something that the Psalms are constantly praising in poetry, the steadfast love of the Lord which endures forever. He's showing him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. This guy can't not lead stuff. No matter where you put him, boom, in charge again. Whatever was done there, the Bible says, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So now the, the, uh, the, the warden doesn't have to think about anything but what's for dinner that night because Joseph is now in charge of all this stuff. Now, Joseph could have asked the question that we ask, what's the use of doing right if there is no immediate reward for doing right? And that's the question we often ask, whether we want to admit it out loud or not. (laughs) What's the point of doing what's right if there is no immediate reward for doing that right? But that's not what Joseph does. He resists the temptation even to his own hurt. And then at the end of Genesis, as he's reflecting back on the circumstances of his life, as I've told you each week, he tells his brothers after having all of these difficult experiences, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the it included this experience. And that's how we've been looking at Joseph's story. In chapter 37, we saw that God uses betrayal for good. And now, this morning, I want us to consider this truth. God uses temptation for good. God uses temptation for good. The Bible is very clear in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that while while God uses temptation for good, God does not himself tempt humanity. It may have seemed to Joseph, and it may seem even to us, as we read this story, that Joseph has been hung out to dry. But as I've said before, the text takes great care to show us that this is not the case. And I want to show us this in four verses that you may have noticed, four phrases that appear repeatedly through Genesis chapter 39. 
First is found in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse 3, the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. He's a slave at this point. Now he's an inmate, verse 21. The Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you see the pattern? Our text goes to great lengths to tell us that there is something going on here. There's something true here more than what we can perceive. Which is important for us to understand in our own lives, is it not? There is more going on in our lives in difficult circumstances than we can immediately perceive. Everything hits the fan, and we're like, where did God go? The Bible answer is nowhere. (laughs) The fact that we have difficult circumstances, the fact that we may be placed under the, the scrutiny of intense trials is not an indication that God has gone on vacation. He is with Joseph, and because Joseph is experiencing his presence, he is experiencing experiencing the blessings of God's presence. And God is going to use even this circumstance where he is facing temptation, resists it, and pays the price for it. God is going to use even that for good. We know the story. At least most of us know the story. If you don't, it's very cool. I love it when people are here, get to hear the story for the first time. But when you are, but most of us know the story, we know that what God is doing, and at every move, every difficult thing that occurs in Joseph's life, God is constantly positioning him to be in the place that he wants him to be, because God is doing something not only in Joseph's life, God is doing something in the lives of his family, God is doing something in human history. We lose perspective on that because we're wondering what's going on with me. And God does care intensely about you, but God is working on levels, on levels, on levels that we aren't even aware of. We too can experience the blessing of God's presence and steadfast love in temptation. As we face temptation day after day after day. Joseph's story points us forward to an even greater example of success in temptation. That of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus experienced his own temptation in the wilderness where he also was tempted day after day after day. For 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus experiences an intense temptation 
by the devil, yet he successfully at every turn resisted the severity of that temptation. And Jesus Christ is even greater than Joseph in his resistance of that temptation because he is one who has, according to uh, Hebrews Chapter 4 and verse 15, he has been tempted in every respect as we have, yet without sin. Joseph is what we call a righteous sufferer. He's one who is suffering through nothing that he has done, but Joseph is not a sinless sufferer. There is only one sinless sufferer in history, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sinless Son of God who, though tempted, lived his entire life without a single sin in word or thought or motivation or deed, not one time. The Bible tells us That not only does God use our temptations for good, but God uses His temptations for your good. How does God use the temptations, Christian, that Jesus experienced for your good? I want to make two suggestions to answer that question. First, because Jesus was tempted, Jesus provides strength for saying no. Jesus provides strength for saying no. Let me read to you a a couple of verses that will be on the screen behind me. The Bible says, therefore he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is speaking about the fact that the the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, does not just take on the appearance of humanity, but takes on the fullness of humanity. Jesus is not simply a convincing imitation of a human, he is 100% divine and 100% human at the same time. He was made like you and made like me in every respect. Why, Why was this done? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the Son of God becomes human like His brothers and sisters in every respect so that He might make propitiation for our sins. That's a fancy word. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation carries with it the idea of the appeasement of God's wrath. Why would God's wrath need to be appeased. We are sinners. We are tempted, 
daily by sin, and we sin often. We, you might say, are prolific sinners. And you don't have to be an axe murderer to be a prolific sinner. We often try to gauge our own sinfulness by measuring ourselves against other people. And you can always find people that are worse than you. And so we choose to focus our attention on those folks. Because there's people out there that are worse than me doing things that that I wouldn't do. And yet the Bible tells us that every single one of us without exception, has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We are prolific in our sin. And because we are prolific sinners, because we have not lived the life that we ought to have lived, the holy life that God uh, not only asks of us, but demands of us, the Bible tells us that we are, there's a sense in which we are under God's wrath. That's a a Bible statement from John chapter 3. If you've been in churches lots of times and you're like, man, he's kind of harsh, don't look at me. Read John 3. God's wrath rightfully rests on us because of the prolific nature of our sin. And yet, the Bible tells us that God does the unthinkable. Rather than pour out His wrath on us as we deserve, the Bible tells us instead that God sends His Son to take on humanity to become like me and like you in every respect so that He could offer Himself as a propitiation, so that He could offer Himself as an appeasement to His own wrath. Which means that Jesus does a couple of things. It means that Jesus goes in our place and experiences in his life temptation after temptation after temptation day after day and is even given a tailored and customized intense temptation in the wilderness for 40 days and never even once sins. A life of perfection. And what is his reward? The punishment that we deserve. Imagine Jesus saying, Father, perfection. And the reward is the cross. Where he stands in our place and bears the wrath of God because we just can't. Say no sin. That, friends, is the good news of the gospel. Because then he rises in three days and he offers forgiveness of sins to everyone who calls on his name in repentance and faith. So let me just say this morning, if you're here with us this morning and you know that you are a prolific sinner, we want to introduce you to an amazing Savior. You have not 
run far enough from him. You have not sinned too much that you cannot be saved. And we would just invite you here in this moment, if you do not know him as your Savior, to believe that that's true and to receive the work of Christ who offers himself as a propitiation for your sins. Notice what the verse says about temptation there at the end of verse 18. Because Jesus has been made like us in every respect, and he, He's offered Himself. So verse 18 says, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He knows what it's like, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus doesn't just provide us the pattern for the life that we ought to live, but He provides us the power to live that life through the Spirit who indwells us. Which is why the Bible says things like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, let me just say. The fact that we can say no doesn't mean we always will. That's true from your own experience, I'm quite sure. And I don't want to present a a pie-in-the-sky thing to you here of, well, I believe this, maybe I'll never sin again. (laughs) There are are, are sins to which we as individual Christians just become addicted. And it is very difficult to break the power of those addictions. Friends, it ought to give you hope to know that you are not a slave to sin, as Romans 6 tells us. That you have been united to Christ by faith in both his death and resurrection, and that there are supplies of power, help from Christ available to you. Don't lose hope. In 1663, Thomas Watson wrote this in his book, All Things for Good. He said, temptations work for good as they engage the strength of Christ. Christ is our friend. And when we are tempted, he sets all of his power working for us. Maybe the first step Fighting back against temptation is taking the biblical perspective that he shares with us and look at Christ as your friend and help. Because what we often do when we are trying to resist temptation or or failing in our resistance of temptation is we start seeing Christ as our enemy. And the Bible presents him as a friend who who has been tempted just as we have been, without sin, and offers his help and his power. So, how does does God use the temptation of Christ for our good, for your good? Well, Jesus provides us strength for saying no. And the second answer I want to give to that question is simply this. Jesus provides grace for when we've given Truth be told, we 
face temptations day after day after day, and we get worn down, and we say yes. We say yes when Jesus would have us say no. And when you have said yes to temptations, the one thing that you don't want to do is look Jesus in the eyes. Right? Because you failed. You have failed the sinless Son of God whose reward for His perfect life was the wrath of God that He did not deserve for your sin. So we give in to our temptations. The one place we don't want to look is in Jesus' eyes. Anywhere else. But look at what the Bible says we should do when we give in. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. The Bible says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How would your life change if you believed that? How would your heart be revolutionized if you could read this and not affirm it as theoretically true but believe it in the depths of your soul that this is true. You don't need confidence to draw near to the throne of grace when you feel like you're doing great, do you? We'll just skip right into the throne room of grace because we have been, we have been doing some righteousness. You don't need the verse at those times. The verse isn't for when you're feeling good about yourself. The verse is for when you are filled with self-loathing. That's when the verse is for. Because that verse is telling Christians filled with self-loathing that you can go with confidence still to the throne of grace with the full assurance that you are going to find all the mercy and all the grace you need. Well, why would that happen? Because you have a high priest who's able to sympathize with your weaknesses. That's why he became flesh. The perspective that we often have when we look at Christ when we have said yes to temptation or when we have looked at the prolific nature of our, sinful, of our sinfulness we often look at Christ not as someone who is sympathetic, but as judging us. As if He's always there in the background with His arms folded like this, saying, boy, you just can't get it, can you? 
How many times does it take, Matt, before you learn your lesson? The Bible says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knew when he offered himself as a propitiation for your sins that you were not going to be very good at saying no to temptation. And yet he is there giving you grace and mercy and steadfast love anyway. That's the gospel. And it's something we desperately need to believe, myself included. I am not standing up here telling you this as if I've done it, now you do it. I'm standing under the word saying we need to believe this. And oh, how it would change our hearts if we did. I'll finish this way. It is exhausting to be tempted every day. Which is one reason why we look forward so much to the eternal state. When we will in the, it be, as the words of the hymn say it, saved to sin no more. Where we will not only no longer sin, but where we will no longer have sinful desires. We will no longer face the crush of a barrage of, in, of, of temptations. But until that day, Jesus understands. Take courage. You have more resources to fight than you think. You have more grace for your failure than you can imagine. And God's going to use every bit of it for good. Let's pray. Lord, all we want to do right now is just, in this moment, ask you to help us believe. Because it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. I pray that you would fill us with an assurance We are loved by our Good Shepherd who sympathizes with us, who's known as a friend of sinners. I pray that you would help us daily receive the power and the strength that you give us to say no. And I pray that you would give us a longing for the day when we're saved to sin no more. There is somebody here this morning who is feeling the depth of their sin and feeling the weight of your wrath 
I pray that you would help them to receive Christ this morning and have that burden lifted from their shoulders forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.